Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Coca. Right now, there are all these debates going on across the country about history and who gets to write and tell our stories and who gets left out. Today on our show, we're going to dig into our archives to play you some of our favorite California history stories reflections on some of the historical injustices against immigrants and communities of color in our state. But what I really like about these stories is that they also highlight acts of courage and resilience you might not have learned about in history class. The U.S. immigration station was open on Angel Island from 1910 until 1940, primarily to enforce the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. The Brown Berets are a community organization that give new pride to Chicano youth and that educate all the people in the barrio on their social and political rights. I feel the hurt of a generation. It's our story and it really demands our love and attention and respect and we need to tell this story. We're going to start with some history that may sound familiar. Uh, we maintain that agriculture is different. It's always been different. This is why agriculture and farm workers were never organized before. As long as we have a poor country uh, bordering California, it's going to be very difficult to win strikes uh, as strikes are won uh, normally by other unions. The movement for farmworker rights in the 1960s. While many Californians probably recognize Cesar Chavez, the role of Filipino farmworkers isn't usually highlighted in the same way. For the series California Foodways, Lisa Morehouse explores a rarely told chapter of the farmworker movement. This story first aired in 2015. It would be really easy to drive through the town of Delano and have no idea that history was made here. It's a pretty typical hot, dry Central Valley town. And when I visit, they're even having a parade. It's Philippine Weekend, a cultural celebration and kind of family reunion. And I talk with a group of young women, all born and raised here. When you guys were in school, was the farm worker movement taught at all? Did it like no, 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 not at all. No, learned it in the streets. <laughs> Angelica Perez clarifies her Latina grandmother and other relatives actually participated in the famous grape strike of 1965. So it was like active family history. 
But did any of them know that it was Filipinos, and mostly men in their 60s, who first walked off the vineyards? Melanie Rituda says she only learned about that last year. I've always known Cesar Chavez and, you know, Hispanics being involved, but being Filipino, it's like, wow, the Filipinos actually made an impact um, during the process. So it makes me proud. But Perez is outraged that history's not known. She says the actions those Filipinos took improved her family's lives. I'm extremely proud that Chavez was the right face at the right time, but a lot of the dirty work was already done. Longtime resident Roger Gadiano knows that well. He's taking me on a tour of key sites, which on the surface seem kind of mundane, a retirement home, a church. But for many people, these ordinary places in Delano are sacred ground, like this high school auditorium. This is the building where Bobby Kennedy went after the county sheriff. Could I suggest in the interim period of time, in the luncheon period of time, that the sheriff and the district attorney read the Constitution of the United States? And a white stucco building on the edge of town. Caesar fasted twice. And that's where Caesar Chavez did his first fasting. Farm workers are not agricultural implements. They are not beasts of burden. And Filipino Hall, a kind of utilitarian community center. But to Gadiano, This is our Mecca. I guess it's our Selma. This is it. The hub of activity for the first years of the farm worker movement. People don't really realize just who in the heck walked in here. But I do. So it, it kind of tickles me, but we're part of a big history, which is bold. We took a step that no one would take. Most of those voting and striking were the elders, the Manongs. These migrant, bachelor, Filipino farm workers have been fighting for better working conditions since the 20s. So when, in the summer of 1965, growers cut the pay of Filipinos picking grapes in the Coachella Valley, they were prepared to act. Historian Don Mabalon. They're led by this really charismatic and veteran, seasoned, militant labor leader, Larry Leung. And they make a stand against the farmers in Coachella, and they win. $1.40 an hour. When these workers migrated north to Delano, organizers like Larry Itliang, Philip Veracruz, and Pete Velasco urged local families to join them in asking for the same raise. Growers balked. At the time, Itliang told workers they might suffer hardships if they struck. Maybe you get hungry. Maybe you're going to lose your car. Maybe you're going to lose your house. So they said they don't care. They felt that uh, they're not being treated fairly by their employers, so they took a strike vote. And workers walked off the fields, leaving ripe grapes on the ground. This was Roger Gadiano's first day of his senior year of high school. In Spanish two class, a grower's son approached him. Hey, Raj, your Uncle Max went on strike. I go, oh, he did? <laughs> oh, they just want to raise, George. Workers got kicked out of labor camps. And the farmers were going to use the Mexicans to break the strike. Now, Cesar Chavez and others have been organizing Mexican workers around Delano for a few years, but a strike wasn't in their immediate plans. But Larry Leong appealed to Chavez, and two weeks later, Mexican workers joined the strike. Soon, the two unions came together to form what would become United Farm Workers, 
with Lariette Leung Assistant Director under Chavez, Don Mabalon. These two groups that had been kept apart for so long coming together to do this, that is the power in the Delano Grape Strike. It took five years of striking plus an international boycott of table grapes before growers signed contracts with the United Farm Workers. Those years weren't easy on strikers, families, or Delano. There was a strange division among us. Alex Edelor remembers the tension, even in church. Kind of split down the middle of the, of the church where he, this is where the, the strikers went and this is where the people who went back to work went. Many local families were like Edelors, whose parents walked off the fields initially, but after a few weeks felt they had to return to work. Even so... Edelor says he and his peers were mentored by leaders like Lariat Leong and Philip Veracruz. We walked away from that era from different avenues, but we came back together because looking back on it, we were very proud of that moment. And he wants young people to know. Not only is it a point of pride, it's a point of fact. I think it would give us uh, some comfort in knowing that we matter. Just to understand that that uh, we stand on the shoulders of people who struggled before us. Don Mabalan says for her and her peers, growing up not knowing this history... I also feel the hurt of a generation. But she adds... It's also on us. It's our story. And it really demands our love and attention and respect. And we need to tell this story. Where are we going now? Say hello to Mono Larry. Roger Gadiano ends our tour at one last ordinary place, Larry at Leong's simple gravesite. He gave our people uh, some dignity. He gave his guts. And he hopes that knowing this history will give young people the guts to fight other injustices. For the California Report, I'm Lisa Morehouse in Delano. There's a sad update to that story. Historian Don Mabalan passed away in 2018. A few months later, the book she co-authored, Journey for Justice, The Life of Larry Itliang, was published. In 2019, Governor Newsom declared October 25th Larry Itliang Day to honor the labor leader for his role in creating the United Farm Workers. And now we're going to head farther back in 20th century California history to one of the oldest immigration detention facilities in the nation. It sits right in the middle of San Francisco Bay. Marisol Medina Cadena took a tour and brought us this story in 2018. Angel Island State Park is just a short ferry ride away from San Francisco's wharf. Most visitors come here to bike, picnic, and catch a stunning glimpse of the Golden Gate Bridge. But there's also some compelling history here that most visitors don't even know about. It requires a steep but short climb and a trek over to a hidden cove. Then you'll find a place often called the Ellis Island of the West. Good morning. I'm Joe Chan, a volunteer docent here. At 76, Joe nimbly darts up the hill, leading a group of a dozen visitors. 
he begins his tour in front of a large bronze bell. It marks where cargo ships carrying immigrant passengers used to dock. The U.S. Immigration Station was open on Angel Island from 1910 until 1940, primarily to enforce the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. It was the first law designed specifically to keep a group of people from freely entering the United States. California actually pushed hard for the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act. The Golden State also had its own laws targeting the Chinese. They had to pay higher taxes, couldn't own land, or attend public schools. Joe leads us up to a pair of concrete steps that immigrants climbed after they got off the ship. So inside the admin building, they're greeted by an American doctor wearing a long white lab coat. And the doctor says to each group in turn, strip, take off your clothes. Immigrants had to give a stool sample and undergo a humiliating medical examination. If you were sick, you had to pay for your own medical treatment. If you couldn't afford it, you were deported. If you were not sick, you continued on through the maze of the administration building and up the covered stairway and into the barracks where you'd wait for your interrogation. That's right, an interrogation. People arriving from China had to explain why they were exempt from the Chinese Exclusion Act. There were some exceptions for merchants, clergy, or children of U.S. citizens. And then there was a loophole. At 5.13 on the morning of April 18, 1906, the city of San Francisco was rocked by an earthquake of frightening proportions. The quake destroyed the city's hall of records, including countless birth certificates. And some smart Chinese man stands up proudly and says, I was born right here. And oh, by the way, I have five sons in China I want to bring over here, because that was allowed under the Exclusion Act. And you guys can't prove otherwise because I lost my birth certificate in the Great Fire of 1906. So many Chinese people already here seized the opportunity by claiming they were U.S. citizens with children back in China. And hopeful immigrants paid large sums of money to pretend they were those children, called paper sons or paper daughters. While sailing across the Pacific, they would memorize their new identities because once they got to Angel Island, they would have to answer hundreds of questions. And so would their sponsoring relatives. What's the name of your village? Where is it located? Is there a wall around your village? What's it made out of? What's the source the of interrogations water were so detailed that some Chinese had to stay on Angel Island for as long as six months. Compare that to the average stay on Ellis Island for European immigrants, just two to three hours. Who lives next door to you on your left? How many pigs do they own? Joe knows these were actual questions because he dug up the records from his own father's interrogation. This is my father's certificate of identity. And uh, he entered in 1926 at the age of 15. It's now part of the museum. And there's also a document from his mom's detention here in 1940. She was actually a U.S. citizen born in Detroit, just returning from a stay in China. For most of his life, Joe never knew that his dad was the paper son who came through Angel Island. It was a family secret. For his whole life, he was looking over his shoulder for the immigration officials to come knocking on the door. And he didn't want me to be implicated in that. Joe didn't learn any of this until after his dad died. Now, Joe wants all Californians to know what happened here. Because this is not a, a, a personal story. This is an American story. It's bleak inside the detention barracks. They're filled with rows of metal bunk beds, 
Joe says the larger rooms were meant to house less than 60 people, but officials usually cram 200 inside. The Immigration Service thought the Chinese were a hardy peasant stock used to sleeping on the ground in China. They didn't need mattresses, but enough complaints arose that mattresses and pillows were soon uh, brought forth. Detainees also rioted until officials agreed to serve Chinese food. When we reach the end of the tour, Joe pauses and asks us to think how history might be repeating itself. Consider what our immigration future should be like. Should we be more exclusive, as we've done in the past, trying to keep more people out of this country? Or should we be more inclusive and try to allow more people to come to this country? The future's up to us. It's up to all of us. Thank you for coming. Joe Chan doesn't do this for applause. He just wants to keep this history alive especially since previous generations were too scared to talk about it. So he'll continue to make the tough hike up to the immigration station, persuading people to follow along and learn what really happened here. For the California Report, I'm Marisol Medina Cadena at Angel Island. going to head to another California island. It's one activists occupied nearly 50 years ago in an effort to reclaim it. Back in August 1972, a Chicano rights group called the Brown Berets camped out on Catalina Island for three weeks, demanding that unused land be turned into housing. Reporter Ariella Markowitz grew up on Catalina, but she only learned about this part of the island's history when she brought us this story last summer. On Catalina, there's this cliff overlooking the ocean, enough space to pitch a few tents. It's beautiful in a down-to-earth way with all this sparkly broken glass and carved initials in the breezy eucalyptus trees. Danger, no trespassing, falling rocks. Locals called the spot Burrito Point, and I heard stories as a kid that there was an Occupy movement that happened here in the 1970s. Now I'm back on the island, and I wanted to dig up some stories from home. I googled it and stumbled upon this radical history that I never learned about in school. Growing up, my town was conservative, defined by tourism, and it still is. It's encouraging visitors during a pandemic. Most residents are Latino, but white people are primarily running the local government, businesses, and are the landowners. The Mexican-American, those are the people that were shortchanged more than anybody, and we continue to get shortchanged. That's Dr. David Sanchez, the man behind the occupation for Chicano rights. Growing up in south-central L.A., he says he confronted gang violence, police brutality, racism, and discrimination. I don't know how I survived it, but I did survive. And uh, it just made me aware that, you know, America was not Disneyland that I thought it was supposed to be. He wanted to create an alternative to joining a gang, an organization that champions cultural pride, unity, education, and advocacy, the Brown Berets. The group was born in 1967 in an East L.A. coffee house called La Piranha. 
they started using it as a headquarters. Well, the coffee wasn't very good sometimes. <laughs> sometimes it was a little two days old sometimes. But nonetheless, our main point was to, to organize the community. You know, that was our, our hidden agenda. And a lot of people joined the movement. The Brown Berets evolved out of the movement in the Chicano community for social justice. This audio is from a student film called Chicano Moratorium that chronicled the movement in L.A. The Brown Berets are a community organization that give new pride to Chicano youth and that educate all the people in the barrio on their social and political rights. The Brown Berets helped organize mass protests against the disproportionate number of Chicanos dying in the Vietnam War. They were known for taking direct action against police violence, showing up outside the police department whenever a cop killed or brutalized someone. One weekend, Sanchez decided to hop on the SS Catalina, strictly on vacation. We went to the island, and uh, it was just it was just a very beautiful, seemed to be a very beautiful place, a very beautiful spot on the map. Because you, know, you had the beaches, you had the ocean, you had the hills, you had the sky, you know, you had the flying fish, you know. <laughs> and uh, it was really, really, really nice place to go. Something about the island stuck with him. He rented an apartment. And on the weekends I would go out there and I uh, just really got to know the people and the people from Tremont. Tremont is Catalina's only public housing option. His new friends told him about how hard it was to afford housing on the island. The city council had just passed a measure that limited household sizes to five people. Alongside discrimination and high rents, working-class folks struggled to make it work. So he had an idea, to occupy the island. He was inspired by the occupation of Alcatraz that happened just three years earlier, and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. It ended the war with Mexico in 1848 and gave a huge chunk of land to the U.S., to Sanchez, the treaty is proof that indigenous and Mexican people were systematically disenfranchised and stripped of their land rights. To top it off, neither Catalina Island nor the Channel Islands were explicitly mentioned in the treaty. These islands do not belong to the United States. These islands are Mexican territories. So Sanchez said the idea was, this land should belong to the people, not the landowners. In this archival reenactment video on the Brown Berets YouTube channel, around 26 folks in military uniforms march off the boat dock, displaying huge Mexican flags, past tourists in straw hats, Hawaiian shirts, and bikinis. The Brown Berets camped out on this elevated point overlooking the ocean, which Sanchez planned out as a strategic location. They always say, take the high land, you know. You know, it fortifies you from people who want to to harm you. They put up the Mexican flag and called the spot Campo Tecalote. They didn't have the resources to stay long, but David figured he'd wing it. I, I went over there with $800. You know, that's, what, that's all I had was $800 for the whole operation, right? We bought food and, uh, you know, a lot of the Mexican-American girls uh, came to our camp. Uh, they would bring us enchiladas and beans. And burritos. That's how Burrito Point actually got its name. I 
I mentioned earlier that Catalina Island is a small, conservative community. I posted about the occupation in a big Facebook community discussion forum, and a lot of people nostalgically remember bringing them food and hanging out at Burrito Point. But others plotted against the outsiders from East L.A. This is what people wrote. They camped out up there with no toilets, water, etc., and soon developed strong body odor. It was awful standing anywhere near them in the grocery store line. A bunch of the men in town met up at the golf course with baseball bats, golf clubs, and such, and were all ready to go up and pound the idiots. It was a big deal in a tiny town. There was no violence. I never felt threatened. I was not at that meeting where local men plotted violence, but I have several friends that were. Now, that part was disturbing. I was bummed that some of our good citizens were armed with handguns, intent on raiding a camp of unwitting young people. That angry white mob never ended up storming the hill. One source told me that the local sheriff made them back off before anything happened. But David Sanchez says someone tried to come and take down their Mexican flag. You got stuck in the cactus bush. You know, so it just, you know, we were, we were you know, defended by nature, you know. After three weeks, L.A. County policemen arrived to enforce an illegal zoning ordinance. The Brown Berets were rooted in principles of nonviolence. They didn't resist. They were escorted off the island. The occupation didn't end with more housing on Catalina, so I asked David Sanchez, do you see it as a success? I think it, it was a success. Uh, it was a success because it marked history. The problem was that the police, began to attack the organization on the mainland. Sanchez says the FBI's counterintelligence program targeted the group, attacked their supply lines, and caused chaos within the organization. Sanchez disbanded the Brown Berets in 1973 for the members' own protection. Occupying Catalina was their last act for a really long time. So Sanchez switched gears. He got his PhD, became a teacher, and a drug and alcohol counselor. I think I've done what I had to do, and I continue to to stand for the rights of the people. Okay, here we are, protesting against the DHX Sanchez actually started the Brown Berets back up again in the mid-1990s. These days, they organize vigils and demand justice for victims of police violence in L.A. What Sanchez and the Brown Berets did 50 years ago on Catalina Island lives on in the impact it made on people's lives. The story that stuck with me the most was from Ana Araiza. It's an island. It doesn't belong to anybody. You live here. It doesn't belong to you. We talked on the phone, and it's a little scratchy. Ana lives in Mendocino County now, but she immigrated to Catalina with her family from Juarez when she was four. She was a teenager when the Brown Berets came to the island, and she remembers her white classmates talking about wanting to, quote, kick the Brown Berets off the hill. Even though Anna called the island home, she says she felt invisible. It wasn't okay to be Mexican. You know, Mexican was like a dirty word. She recalls meeting one of the members of the Brown Berets and spending the afternoon with her. And that moment stuck with Anna. Years later, she left the island and had a long career in organizing farm workers and helping domestic violence survivors. She credits her life trajectory to those seeds that were planted by the Brown Berets. For The California Report, I'm Ariella Markowitz on Catalina Island. (laughs) 
And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Maleon. Our director is Susie Racho. And our producer is Amanda Font. We had help this week from Hector Arzate and Chris Hoff. Brendan Willard is our sound engineer. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.